Hey, everybody. Welcome to our show. My name is Vic Sinise. I'm going to be the moderator, so I'll be reading off the questions. Um, my experience in urology, I've been here a long time. I was past president of the Chicago Metro SUNA chapter, currently working as a board liaison with them. I'm also past president of SUNA and uh, lectured many times for SUNA, actually planning on or am lecturing at the New Orleans meeting on technology. Hope that many of you that show up or watch it virtual. It's going to be pretty interesting. Um, I've been in urology for most of my career, which is like 40 years now. I celebrated 40 years ago that I became a nurse. So that's my uh, uh, part. Uh, Lori, can you give us a little introduction about you? Sure. My name is Lori Atkinson. And <clears throat> excuse me, I've been in urology for Sorry, I forgot my throat. It's early. Um, I've been in urology for 24 years. I've probably been, I was certified in 2003 as a certified urology registered nurse. Um, I'm currently working at Northwestern at Delmore in Geneva. And I'm excited that Vic got this together because I'm excited um, to share information with you all. Thank you. Andrea, a little bit about yourself. Hi, my name is Andrea Strong. I'm a nurse practitioner and I've been in practice for less than a year now, but I'm loving it. Um, I've been a nurse since 2010 and most of that time I spent working in urology. I did inpatient night shift, I did outpatient um, and I did the ambulatory float pool, in, um, which I loved. Um, I'm certified as a urology nurse and um, happy to answer any of your questions. All right, great. And for those of you that have tuned in as, as attendees, the only way we can hear from you is to have you sign or to have you send in your questions through the Q&A box. Feel free to do that. Um, I'm going to take some of the preloaded questions. Um, well, the, the ones that Katie sent in are regarding uh, prostate biopsy and PSA. So I'm going to save those for the second half hour. Um, but Jody Sinise from uh, Lowell, Indiana sent this one. How do I respond when a friend says they don't like their current doctor? Who, who wants to take that one? Andrea. I can take that one. So I presume you're talking about a patient that may be saying that they don't like um, their doctor. So um, I think what I would probably do is say, I'm, you know, I'm so sorry to hear that. Um, you are welcome to select any provider that you feel comfortable with. I would, you know, just leave it an option that they don't have to stay with their, you know, current provider and just, you know, keep it very, let's say, obviously very professional um, and just giving them their options that they have to maybe seek out other providers. Lori? So what I would do is definitely feel the person out too, to, to see what their personality is. Cause I know that all doctors have different personalities. Some are kind of to the point and some people like to, to discuss, they want more time where some physicians kind of rush. So I think it's really important for you to, um, to really feel that person out and see what their personality is like. Yeah, that's a good point. I think that, uh, you find that there's physicians who are very skillful, but have lousy bedside manners, then you find someone with lousy bedside or really good bedside manners and less skills. So I think if you can find a perfect mix of both, it's great. 
when I have had patients in the past say, you know, I really don't like the doctor I go to. And I'm like, well, why do you keep going? You know, there are lots of options out there. Um, and I agree with you, you know, just kind of tell them they need to match a doctor that they think is best suited to them. Now, I recently moved to Indiana. So one of the things that my wife and I had to do was start looking for physicians closer to home. We lived in Illinois originally. Um, so what I did is a lot of it was just go online and look at their credentials. So the, you know, how long have they been in practice? Have there been any complaints? Because people that you don't always see compliments, but you do see complaints show up quite a bit. If there's some issues, people like to complain, but they rarely compliment. Um, and just kind of look at what options are available and pick somebody you think is going to work out. I, I got real lucky with our general doctor. He happened to be a Rush graduate, which is the same place I graduated from. So we had that in common. But I, I like his style and he had really good uh, information about how, you know, he practices. So it was good. All right, folks, I see plenty of you up there. Let's uh, let's drop some questions here. So we have some information to talk about. In the meantime, I'll go around and just ask uh, my panelists what they think we could do with the Euronurse going forward in the future. What would be some of the ideas that you might have? Uh, we'll start with Andrea this time. Sure. Um, I think we have an opportunity to connect Euronurse to a bunch of different avenues that are already existing in the online world. Um, I mean, we're all kind of living in different social media platforms. Um, so using maybe Facebook Live, um, incorporating Twitter, incorporating LinkedIn, and sort of creating a community that pulls from different sources. We've already got YouTube going. We've already got this live webinar. We're recording it. But I think, you know, everyone sort of lives in that space. So pulling it all together, I think would be really fun. I also think it would be really cool to know where everyone's coming from, different parts of the nation. Um, there's also, or maybe even international. And to also kind of see how the culture is different in healthcare, depending on the location that you're in. Um, and practices vary, you know, from the Midwest to the South to different locations. And it'd just be interesting to see what everyone's experience is. I agree with that. I, I encourage the folks out there that are uh, sending questions in, put down where you're from. You know, I'm, I'm Vic Sinise from Chicago Ridge. Well, it says there on my tag, but add that to your question because it is kind of interesting to know where people are coming from and um, a lot of the group I recognize some of the names I know there's some Suna people out there and you know I think this is going to be something that's going to take time to grow this is our first episode but the nice thing is it's also our chance to really decide what it's going to be how we're going to go forward with it and what things people want I agree with Andrea that things have changed quite a bit I think in the the way we we communicate with each other is no longer the same. You know, it used to be you'd go to a formal conference, you know, with either your local chapter or your big organization like SUNA. But now I talk to the, the newer people in our group and they're just like, I don't have time for that. But hopefully this brings it right to their house and this will allow them to have time. What do you think, Lori? Well, I think back in the day when I just went up to somebody <clears throat> um, at a Chicago Metro chapter SUNA meeting, um, and it was at the McDonald's Corporation way back in the day. And I asked Kathy Marchese, 
well, how do I get involved with Suna? And she snatched me up like no tomorrow. And I think it's hard for people to, um, they may want to be involved with Suna, but they don't know how. So I think this is an excellent way to share information on how to do that as well. Yeah, it's a good, good point. That's a lot of how, uh, how a lot of us became part of this was somebody said, hey, you know, come on, join us. This is a fun place to be. Yeah, I think and it, it has been great. I think it's a really great tool also to reach some of our rural practitioners. Um, we have a huge need for healthcare in rural areas. And in many cases, those needs are not being met because there's not enough providers. And maybe those providers don't feel like they have a huge support system and they're not able to travel far for the live SUNA conferences. So this, I think, offers an opportunity to reach everyone to yeah. improve practice, yeah. I agree. And even if you look at the, uh, you know, the chapters for SUNA, you know, they don't cover the U.S. very well. And as you said, some of the fringe areas, not at all. So I think this does give us another opportunity. I think more is always is better than less. And one of the reasons I started this was, you know, SUNA was always really good to me in the local chapter is how I learned about urology. And now I think I'm in a state where, you know, trying to give back is making sense and trying to, you know, bring up the next group of people in urology. And it may be a different cha uh, changing at, um, uh, climate because a lot of the stuff that was strictly RN, the uh, offices have gone to medical assistance providing mm -hmm. some of that care. And we need to start thinking about that educational component. So my thought is even Euronurse could have, you know, multiple facets and different dates could be, you know, leaning more toward one type of caregiver versus the, you know, the RN versus maybe even the advanced practice nurse. Um, but I think that the, my thought is consistency would make a lot of sense to have something that's here every week. So, you know, there's a place to go. Now I'm going to rely on panelists to help me out to, to be willing to give some of their time up to get it going. I think once people see that this is a somewhat easy thing to do or inviting, you know, fun thing to do. We'll get more people to be panelists. I know a lot of people out there are watching saying, hmm, maybe I could do this. You could. <laughs> uh, we do have a question that just came in. Olive Andrianos said, with the shortage of BCG, what other treatment options has your practice done in an outpatient clinic setting? And Lori, go ahead. So we actually in our office did have, we do have currently enough BCG, but we are running out as well. And so the gemcitabine <clears throat> is our alternative along with mitomycin. Now the gemcitabine, um, I know downtown Northwestern in Chicago like to do the, the gemcitabine with the doxetaxel. So we're lucky enough to have a pharmacy that can mix this for us. So I don't know exactly how to, you know, how these are mixed in the office at this point, or if it's possible because you have to have a hood because it's chemo. So if somebody wants to chime in on that, that'd be great because I'd like to know as well. I, yeah, I don't know <clears throat> what the workflow would be for mixing these substances in outpatient areas who don't have access to a, a larger pharmacy. Um, as far as agents used, I've seen um, docetaxel, mitomycin. I've seen interferon used um, as a single agent. I've seen 
BCG divided up into half doses, even quarter doses for patients. Um, so that's what I've seen in the past. I think that this also brings up another important topic and that is um, safety with chemotherapy agents, especially if you're of childbearing age, whether you're a male or female, making sure that you're following all of the different protocols from the um, American, what is it, the American Oncology Society, ONS, Oncology Nursing Society. Nursing. Yeah. yeah. Um, you know, following those protocols to really make sure that you're protecting yourself um, with those agents. I think that goes back to the the thought about the in the office mixing up yeah. uh, these chemicals. You know, the BCG is done in, in the office, but it can be done in the contained system so that you're not aerosolizing it and getting exposed to it and with the proper protocols. Um, but the chemotherapeutic agents really, if you read the PIs, they should be mixed in a hood. Mm -hmm. And I don't think most offices have a hood. Lori? So there's also some companies, and I, I can't tell you offhand who they are, but there are um, the shelf life of mitomycin and gemcitabine are actually really long compared to BCG. Mm -hmm. So, because we're looking, because we're building an offsite location that does not have a pharmacy. So we're looking at some <clears throat> offsite pharmacies, excuse me, <clears throat> that will actually, I'm losing my voice. <clears throat> Uh, um, offsite pharmacies that will actually mix it and then they send it to us and then you can refrigerate it for up to days, weeks. So um, PCG, of course, I think is four hours that you have to use it by as, as opposed to these other agents that actually have a lot longer shelf life. So I think it's really thinking outside the box now with uh, you know, these restrained uh, um, product development, you know, things that are, you know, the, the ability to ship items have slowed down. Has anybody experienced any problems with lidocaine shortages for your office? I know that's been a big issue for our office. Um, we ha I don't think we felt the squeeze on that yet, but I am aware that there is some um, shortages of that. Yeah. And so far we're, we have enough to go by. I mean, I don't know how a, a physician's office can, can practice without having local anesthetic. So it's, it's kind of a crazy situation, but you know, we've taken to making sure that we're keeping everything under lock and key. So nobody decides to make an extra dollar by selling some of our stock off, but it's just a, it's a crazy situation. All right, audience out there, please feel free to send in your questions. Um, again, we'll sit here and talk, but Hey, Vic, I want to bring something up that's yeah. a, a problem for our office is the MA shortage. Does anybody have an MA shortage? Because we're having a, <clears throat> excuse me, a really hard time finding medical assistance um, and hiring them. And I don't know if anybody is in that same situation. I have an answer for you. Okay. What we did, um, because that situation, you're right, it is a problem, is we uh, went in worked with some of the local uh, um, colleges that teach the MA programs and worked as they're taking them in as externs. because so they have to do an externship or internship, I'm not sure which one it's called, for so many hours as part of their training. So we worked with uh, our local uh, college, which is Moraine Valley, and <clears throat> they would send their people, you know, put somebody in with us for their externship 
they would work with us and it was like almost a perfect way to kind of groom people into coming to your practice because they kind of find out they like what you do plus you get to see how they are how reliable they are i think somebody who you know was calling off during their clinicals and it, it i think i've hired probably about five or six employees that way and i mean high quality still with us employees so i, I encourage you to you know work with your collaborate with your local you know community colleges that have those programs yeah, I think the problem is our community colleges are with other corporations. And so, I mean, we have externs, we have externs, we have PA externs, we have uh, residents, we've got all these people, but for whatever reason, MAs, um, we don't have externs for, and I wish we did. I'll have to look into that, but that's a good point. Yeah. There's a couple uh, college, you know, usually it's just kind of reaching out to them. You find out who the, their director of education is and just reach out and say, hey, you know, we got this program. We're willing to take people in for it. And yeah, I think, I, pay, I is very, I think pay is very competitive, too, right now, because I mean, we probably have a 12 percent um, shortage of MAs right now. I mean. I'm working three physicians, two PAs with one MA. I mean, it's it's not pretty. Wow. So, and I want to bring this out to everybody who's on. If you know anybody, <laughs> <laughs> we're oh, looking. We just, we just found another use for your own nurse recruitment. <laughs> That's right, <laughs> recruitment. We're looking. <laughs> there we go. I haven't had um, you know a whole lot of workflow experience or administrative uh, experience with trying to get MAs into the practice, but I think a good practice to prevent over um, turnover is making sure that your work environment is a non-toxic environment. That's that's a huge cause for for staff turnover. So just being cognizant of that and and uh, keeping that on the back of your mind in order to keep your staff is important. Yeah, our, so what happened with our um, particular department, it's not that we have overturn or what have you, we have pregnant people <laughs> on maternity leave, <clears throat> but we just opened actually, <clears throat> excuse me, a year ago um, at Delmore. We're now opening a brand new practice at Central Page Hospital in, in, um, in Winfield. And so they're brand new offices at Northwestern in the West region. And so these, I mean, it's not that we're, you know, people are leaving, it's we're having a hard time getting them in, so. Yeah. All right, since we're at a little lull here, I'm gonna try one of my experiments. There's polling available on this. I'm gonna launch a poll right now and let our attendees, if you would, just fill up this little three question poll out for me. Um, Again, it's mostly just to kind of see what things we have, what options we have for going forward in the future. But uh, oh, at least I know one thing, our, our attendees are alive because they are filling out our poll. So that's good. So oh, great, great. So hopefully you're not having problems with the question and answer box. It is a little box that can be found if you're working on an iPad or something. Sometimes you have to click the top of it to reveal the, the other features of Zoom. Um, if you're on a regular computer screen, it's a little box that says Q&A on the bottom. And if all else fails and you really can't 
seem to figure it out, you can go to euronurse.com and up on the top right-hand corner is a button that says submit questions and you'll just be able to type in a quick question. It'll send it um, to my email, which I'll be able to still bring on live to, to the program. So can, can the other panelists see the poll or not? Yes. Okay, so you can see what's this. Yeah. So, well, so far, we've got ease of joining is 100% said it was easy. Quality is great. And I found this webinar to be, I gave them the choice of excellent, okay, or waste of time. Nobody thought it's a waste of time, so we're, we're heading the right way. Everybody said excellent. So really appreciate it. It's, it's uh, like I said, just to kind of get a, a bit of a feedback uh, Sometimes we'll we'll use the polling throughout some of these episodes. I think it could be helpful. And I actually had one. Let me see if how do I end this? Oh, here it is. <laughs> I'm gonna end that poll just to get rid of that. All right. And again, I encourage anybody in the audience that has questions. This is really what we're, we're gonna be all about. If we don't get any questions, I will certainly be glad to go into the PSA prostate biopsy side of it. Um, and if anybody, any of my panelists have anything to say, what do you think so far, Andrea, about being a panelist? Was it a hard choice to do or did I twist I mean, your arm that much? <laughs> no. no, no arm twisting. Um, I think it's really fun. It's pretty casual, which is, you know, that's, that's refreshing and fun. And it, I feel like I'm just having a conversation with friends. Yeah. Um, so I, I'm having fun. Great. Lori. Same here. Uh, I'd love to hear from everybody who's on, um, get their ideas for what they'd like to talk about in the future. Any, you know, any um, conversations that they want to have. I mean, we're pretty, I, I think all of us are pretty, um, knowledgeable in urology in general. So if there's any ideas that anybody has that we'd like to have you throw it out there, it could be your dynamics, it could be prostate cancer, it could be bladder cancer, it could be anything, um, just ideas so that we can, we know what everybody wants to kind of share in the future. Good, good. So a couple of back, uh, back of the scenes information. So the Zoom webinar program does a uh, automatic email. So when you sign up, it's going to email you, um, I think it's the day before the meeting and then like an hour before it starts is a reminder with the links again. So if you lose the link, don't worry about it. Um, you can become a panelist by simply filling out the panelist request on our website. And let's see, I can get that website up here. Maybe I can. I can show you that. And that's make it big. So for those that have not seen the website, the submit questions is right here. The after show, if you want to go and see that, it's just right here. Just click on that. That'll take you to the after show. Register as attendee is what everyone did here. If you want to be a panelist, it's not a hard questionnaire to fill out just to get some general information. And then I have to contact you. I have to put you in so that you come in on the panelist side of the schedule. Um, 
If you want to watch it on YouTube, you can click here to see YouTube. You want to visit our Facebook page. So I try to make this as simple as possible. One of the benefits that I, I see in the future, because this is being recorded, is that we're going to be able to, um, it'll be on YouTube. People can watch it afterwards. It'll be on our website. You can watch it afterwards. So if you didn't get to see it, you'll be able to watch it later. Hey, finally, I see some stuff coming up. Charlene Vollmer, who I know comes from Springfield, Illinois, sharing that I'm just in awe with this Zoom webinar program and shared the link with others down this way at MVC. And I think that's where she works. I don't know what MVC stands for, but uh, thanks for the feedback. That's, that's kind of what we're looking for is that you're enjoying it. We hope to get more participation by questions, but I think that'll come. I think everybody's kind of feeling this out. Is this something that we're going to find useful? I do have Monica Friedman, new urology nurse from Northern California. Hey, welcome. On future Saturdays, will you consider, will you concentrate on a specific urology topic or are these meant to be general? I'm happy either way. I have a lot to learn. Thanks. So I can tell you that this is definitely going to be driven by um, a half hour of a specific deep dive into something. So that's what our format is. We're going to be diving into prostate and PSA shortly. That may get a lot of questions too. Um, but what do you need to know? I mean, I can think of a, a whole bunch of subjects that I can could offer, but uh, maybe one of our panelists would like to volunteer something now for next week. Lori. <laughs> Well, I'd like to see what, I mean, I'm, I'm, like I said, I've been in urology for 24 years, so give me a topic and I can roll with it for sure. There you, there you go. Um, I think that this is great that we, and hopefully we can also um, uh, do emails too towards, you know, one another as well and share information so that, you know, if anybody has a question as well, we can also communicate through emails would be great. But if there's a topic that anybody wants to talk about, I can prepare to do it next week. Um, just let me know. And feel free to submit during this if you'd like, um, or go to the after show and chat about what you guys would like to hear for next week. I promise you there will be a new subject. There's plenty in urology to talk about. And I think once you see my presentation, you'll have an idea what I'm looking to, to do in the way of a presentation. Um, all right, let's see. My next question comes from Dorothy Rodriguez. I forwarded the Euronurse email to my MAs. I'm glad there is an easy, affordable venue for them to learn. We are a small office with some great MAs. And I think we talked a little bit about the benefit of this program. I think that could be, you know, spun off for MA specific topics. You know, how do you set up a, a tray? How do you turn over, you know, reprocess equipment? I think we could, you know, any of those things would be great. Yeah. And Vic, I'll say when I was um, a new urology nurse in the outpatient setting, I went to a, you know, live SUNA conference and they had, it was, I think like a fundamentals or a urology 101 kind of course that was amazing. I mean, just the basics of the different types of catheters, what size, what's a three-way catheter, um, the colors that correspond with the French sizes, what's a silastic catheter. I mean, even basic terminology, just so that you feel more comfortable in your environment is really helpful. Yeah. Yeah, this, this conversation's got my head just spinning right now of all different topics to, 
to, to talk about. I mean, catheters is almost a topic on its own. Um, I do think it's also a possibility to invite industry in to do some talking too. We're not doing uh, you know credit hours attached to it. So we have the flexibility to do whatever we want. So maybe there's a, people want to know about more about Resume or Eurolift or, and you know, these company reps can be a, a valuable asset to, to tap into. So everything goes. Charlene did come back. It's Mississippi Valley area South. So thank you again for your participation. Uh, Lisa Shimkus said, how many year dynamic studies are you doing in one day? And who is doing the studies RNs? Also, is it one nurse? Do you have a helper such as an MA? Who wants to take that one? All right, Laurie was first. Uh, so we both do your dynamics. <clears throat> so we we actually just started doing a lot of your dynamics. I, I've been doing your dynamics for a long time. Your dynamics in itself is, um, it takes a long time to really get good at it. So we've been so... With our corporation, unfortunately, they won't let MAs do it, which um, in a previous place that I worked at, there was an MA that did it. She did a fantastic job, but unfortunately, they don't allow catheters. And so I have um, two RNs that do it. Um, right now, they're doing it together um, because I think that sometimes in the beginning, when you're first learning how to do your dynamics, it's like it's good to have two heads better than one. Um, because you know, they're very, it, there's always something comes up. Like, for example, just recently last week, one of the, um, RNs brought me into the room. It's like, I don't know what's going on. Are the, the catheters misplaced? What's going on? And it was kind of this wave that just kind of went like this the whole time. And I'm looking at it. I go, um, that's because the patient is obese and he's on oxygen and he's breathing. <laughs> so, I mean, there's just those little things that come up that, you know, but yeah, our RNs, the RNs um, <clears throat> perform those studies in, in my practice. And Andrea? Yeah, I, I agree with you, Lori. It takes a while to get really good at, at urodynamics. I have seen many different models depending on the location of the practice and the state. Um, I've seen medical assistants do urodynamics. I've seen nurses do urodynamics. Um, physicians or nurse practitioners doing urodynamics. Um, in practice, I've seen only advanced practice providers or physicians doing the interpretation. I don't think that um, nurses are able to do the interpretation because they're not able to drop the charges on that. Um, and then I've seen urodynamics uh, uh, just get a one hour session for urodynamics, which I think would be really tough to do. Uh, when I was doing urodynamics, it was uh, 90 minute. Um, session. And, and sometimes you really had to hustle depending on the patient's mobility status, if you had to use a Hoyer lift. And I think the practice that I'm currently at, they do four to five per day, but we have a large population of neuro euro patients that require lift equipment and, and um, you know, mobility assistance. So I think it really varies on your practice. Yeah, I agree. And I've done your dynamics myself. We've always had an, an RN that's been trained specifically in urodynamics. And typically, I was the only one who did urodynamics and other things, but the other two um, did strictly urodynamics. And it's, you know, an hour is probably the fastest you could turn over a urodynamic test and do it properly. 
there's no way you can do this unless you're trained properly and have experience and, and understand what you're seeing just for what Lori had mentioned, that, that waveform that you see. All of us who do urodynamics were shouting in our heads, you know, that 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 was breathing. And, you know, sometimes you'll see a blip and it's, you know, it's coming from the rectal uh, monitor, not the abdominal monitor, and you go, that's gas. You know, it's these things are just automatics when you do a lot of this, and it's good to have somebody. So at this point, I am going to switch over to my talk on prostate uh, PSA and uh, um, give me a second while I figure out how to take over the screen so I can switch over. And here we go. So today I'm gonna to talk to you about PSA and prostate biopsy, chicken or the egg. And I think I'll make it apparent why I call it that. So as we know with PSA, um, it's found in all normal prostate cells. And I used a box here as my example because the PSA, I mean, the prostate cancer, if you look under, under a microscope as a biopsy sample, they kind of look like boxes. And we know that uh, normal cells have PSA, prostate cancer cells have PSA. So the PSA comes from all these places. The nice thing is it's found in the blood. So it's simple enough to just do a quick test where we just draw some blood and we've come up with a, what we consider our normal range. So anything um, that was greater than four was considered too much PSA. So we know that the cells are not perfect in holding PSA. So they do leak a certain amount into the blood. And so what we have here is a patient with normal prostate cells and cancer cells. They all contain PSA. And one of the theories is that with cancer, it causes destruction of the cell. And again, look under a microscope at a cancer, uh, prostate cancer, and you'll kind of see that the cells are nice boxes where it's not cancer and these kind of blown out looking things where it isn't. So it kind of makes sense that, you know, the PSA would stand a better chance of leaking out of those boxes and we would see a higher concentration of PSA. And that's exactly why we see that. Now with any test, we always wanna kind of weigh the difference between how sensitive it is and how specific it is. So for example, digital rectal exam, sensitivity. Well, you know, until there's a nodule, really you don't feel anything, you know, so you're detecting prostate cancer when it's gotten to be pretty advanced. Um, specific, you know, it could be a stone, it could be a uh, prostate cancer, or it could even be a little cyst or something. So it's not a very sensitive, not a very specific test, but it was the best we had. That was our screening. So again, we look at the, those two measures. Now, when we look at PSA, what we have is a unique uh, ability to be very sensitive. Some would argue too sensitive at picking up prostate cancer at the cellular level before it starts to spread and become a hard enough nodule. What we don't have is a very specific, meaning that when PSA is elevated, it's not just because of cancer. But in 1994, the FDA did give the nod because of the sensitivity to use PSA as part of a screening uh, routine for men with prostates. I guess all men have prostates, so for our prostate group. So anybody 50 years or older should have a PSA or and, and a digital rectal exam as of 1994. And they kind of ignored the fact that the, the specificness of the test wasn't there. I'm avoiding saying that word because I keep stumbling over specificity. 
um, BPH, prostate, UTIs, digital rectal exams, ejaculation, exposure to Agent Orange. We have a lot of Vietnam vets who have hit that prostate age. All can cause the uh, PSA to go up. And one of the other things is sensitivity can be adjusted based on age. Now, it's not a real thing that we, uh, we adjust. It's an artificial adjustment. And basically, what we've done is said that, hey, you know, probably somebody who's very young, we need to catch their cancer because they're the ones that are going to die of prostate cancer. And somebody who's very old, maybe we shouldn't be catching all these cancers because they're going to probably die with prostate cancer. So you can adjust the numbers. So the sensitivities, as you can see from my chart here, for a young man under 50 is up to 2.5. For an older man, 70 and older, up to, excuse me, 6.5. So it's an artificial adjustment, but it does make sense that you don't want to detect too many cancers. And it probably makes sense, the chicken and the egg. So we have PSA coming along, and that's going to drive biopsies. And that's exactly what it did. Once we started using the screening exam, the numbers of biopsies went up tremendously. Of course, the chicken and the egg, if you do more biopsies, you're probably going to detect more prostate cancer. And that's exactly what happened. So much so that in 2008, a group of medical, uh, many of the medical groups started getting together and saying, wait a second, you know, this is a little bit too much. We may be doing more damage than good. And the thought was detecting prostate cancer early may not reduce your chance of dying from prostate cancer. That's important. You know, it's always nice to diagnose cancer, but these very low-grade tumors that tend to act more like benign tissue are being diagnosed along with aggressive tumors like, you know, your Gleason 7s, but they shouldn't all be treated the same. And it'd be nice if we could not detect those very small tumors. Plus, a number of PSAs have, you know, uh, negative results. So what we really needed to do was to find a way to increase the specific, there I go, the specificness of the PSA test. Otherwise, it's just like flipping a coin, the accuracy just based on PSA alone. So one of the first things that uh, came along is a uh, test called free versus total PSA. And we know that some of the PSA is not bound to other proteins. So you can measure that as it compares to total PSA. And we get this table. And basically, there's a couple caveats. Number one, it uh, only works on PSAs between a level of 4 and 10. And the percentage would then indicate that if it was a very low percentage, that there's a very high probability of finding prostate cancer. Now, that's just finding all prostate cancers. Really what I think the goal is, is to find high-grade prostate cancers. PSA density is another option that we uh, look at. PSA density is often not performed ahead of biopsy. It's done usually during a biopsy. You know the PSA, you, you measure the volume of the prostate, but at least it gives us an indicator for a big prostate probably causes more PSA to be produced. It just makes sense. You've got more mass it's going to leak out more PSA, and that would explain it. And if you divide the two and your number comes out to be um, less than 0.15, your risk of it being due to cancer is less. It's probably caused by large prostates. So we already do a biopsy anyway, and when the results come back and it's negative, the doc can feel pretty comfortable saying, hey, you know, you probably just have a big prostate. That's why your PSA went up. 
Now, this is the one that I think is one of the most promising, um, and it's called ISO PSA. And at this point in my career, I kind of pick and choose what I like to do. And the prostate work is really my favorite. So I'm really involved in prostate biopsy, I'm involved in the, the procedures, uh, Eurolift and, and Resume um, that treat prostate uh, enlargement. But with the prostate biopsy, this is a new one that just started popping up on our test. And I see two scores, the ISO PSA and the regular PSA. ISO PSA is 80% accurate in predicting high-grade cancer. Now, that's important. That's what we want to go after. So for those that are wondering what ISO PSA is, so instead of looking at the concentration like PSA, how much, you know, how concentrated it is in the blood, you can actually look at the structure of the uh, PSA. And there's a, uh, by adding a reagent, it breaks it into two components, two ISO components. And you can look at those just like, uh, as you remember from your old chemistry set, oil and water, oil floats on water. So the same thing happens. And you can find the ratio of where this breakdown is and utilize that number to predict who should be receiving a biopsy and who probably doesn't need a biopsy. So if you have an ISO PSA less than six, you have a uh, 90, fortunately, believe it or not, part of my screen is cut off, <laughs> chance of having high-grade cancer. I think it's a 92% chance. And if you have a, a PSA that's above six, then you have about a 50% chance of having high-grade cancer. I'm sorry, the, the one I, I, I can't read the whole thing is you have a PSA less than, ISO PSA less than six, you have a 92% chance of not having a high-grade cancer. I hope I didn't confuse people. It's above six. So what's happened now is when I see patients for prostate biopsy, I'm seeing a PSA of 10 and an ISO PSA of seven. The six, five, four, threes, they're not even showing up. And since it is highly accurate, it's reasonable. And as somebody who has to have a PSA every year, I can tell you that if my PSA was elevated, I'd wanna know my ISO PSA. To complete it, four K scores, another test that's using prostate specific biomarkers, it uses four, thus the four K score, total PSA, free PSA, intact PSA, and human calicrine two. Also looks at some other factors, and I, I got to tell you that I'm not a big one. Uh, I'm not the, the guy who knows everything about specific biomarkers, but this guy does. Formula on the left hand side, you have risk of cancer. On the right hand side, you will have what's called coefficients, four, two, half, three, and then multiplied by the level of the particular marker. Each of those political markers has a different coefficient. Okay? Multiply. Makes perfect sense, right? Uh, urinary biomarkers are another thing that we looked at. Um, so there are some, some specific cancer-produced biomarkers that can be found in the urine. They do a test where they do a rectal exam to express um, prostate tissue into the urine. You urinate it out, and then they can come up with some um, numbers as to risk of whether you needed a prostate biopsy or not. Um, not very specific to different types of cancer, but I mean, of different, whether it's high grade or low grade though. 
And to that, I will swing it over to our questions for the audience. Hopefully that was helpful. And bear with me as I figure out how to stop sharing this. Yeah, there we go. Good. So bring my questions back in the view. So there was a question. All right, so I'm just, I'm that uh, Katie had sent in earlier. When a patient is referred for elevated PSA, does your office after physical exam order an MRI, ultrasound, or repeat PSA or biomarker test? And do you think the new article suggesting that a quick contrast-free MRI scan for routine screening could have a better risk-benefit ratio than the current PSA blood test? So I'll open that up to the audience if anybody wants. Uh, Lori, go ahead. So actually right now we do have a, an extern that's actually working on a little project for us because we do, when somebody presents for an elevated PSA, you know, back in the day, they would just either repeat it or just jump to biopsies or, or give them antibiotics to see if it would go down. Um, we do a lot of MRIs now. So right now we're actually doing a little study to see the correlation and to see if the MRIs are really, um, uh, really valuable. And we actually have found that they really, really are. So our MRIs are 3T MRIs. Um, and they give a PIRAD score. And if you don't know what a PIRAD score is, basically they're rating it as five being most likely that it's cancer and it could be metastatic versus one that it's probably not cancer. So um, we have found that we get a lot of fours, um, we get a lot of fives, we get a lot of threes. Threes are indeterminate. We don't know which way it goes. We give that patient the option, um, you know, whether they want to go with the biopsies or just wait and repeat the PSA. But what we found is, is especially at the fours and the fives, and including my father who had a PIRAD four, um, it did correlate with the biopsies to um, be positive for cancer. So I think MRIs, in my opinion, in our office are very valuable. Andrea, what, do you have any yeah. with, uh, MRI? Yeah. Um, so we usually do MRIs um, for any question of elevated PSAs. I know that a lot of facilities may not have access to those, those levels of MRIs. Um, as far as Katie's first question, you know, if they're referred for an elevated PSA, do you do an MRI ultrasound, repeat a PSA, or do a biomarker test? I think, I mean, any of those answers may be correct, depending on the conversation between the provider and the patient. I think shared decision-making is really important when it comes to this, because sometimes, you know, it's really a gray area and some patients are really fine with living with the uncertainty of it. Some patients are not fine with the uncertainty and they really want an answer. Um, so that shared decision-making is really important. I think when you're considering, you know, chasing elevated PSA, it's really important to look at what the patient's life expectancy is. So if they're not, you know, expected to live past 10 years, I just tell the patients that, you know, 
you're, you're not likely to die from prostate cancer. And then if they're still really concerned about it, we still move forward. But um, I think it's important to just have those conversations with patients ahead of time. And then as far as the article suggesting that a quick and contrast-free MRI scan for routine screening could have a better risk-benefit ratio than the current PS, PSA blood test, I'm not familiar with the article, um, but we know that PSA is, is not the, the best test um, for checking for prostate cancer. So I'd be curious to, to read that and learn a little bit more about it. Yeah, the uh, article that she was referring to is, was printed in Medscape called Quick MRI Scan for Routine Prostate Cancer Screening. Um, one of the, the caveats that I'll, I'll put in, you know, with our rising cost of healthcare, MRIs are not the least expensive way to diagnose things. And I think that we also have to kind of be, you know, shepherds for our healthcare dollars because they're not unlimited, unlike some of the other politicians think our dollars are. But, uh, you know, we need to be spending those wisely because, you know, if something, and I think ISO PSA to me makes a lot of sense. And I like the, the fact that we've started to incorporate that in our practice um, because we're, I think, eliminating a lot of unnecessary you know, biopsies and probably unnecessary low-grade cancer diagnosis. I, I can tell you, after being involved in urology for you know, over 30 years, that when a patient hears the word cancer, all they know is, I want to get rid of it. You know, it meant that, that what was that book, Men Are From Mars, Women Are From Venus or something. Men think differently than women. Men are like, what's the next step? We want to know how to take care of it. They, a woman might, and I should be, should be sexist, but women typically will think through things more. Guys don't want to think through. They just want action. I got cancer, get rid of it. And it's not always the best option, especially for these low-grade tumors. And physicians spend a lot of time explaining why they don't need anything. So I think we're causing a lot of you know, angst amongst people when you diagnose cancer that they probably would have never died of and certainly weren't going to have any serious implications to their health. And we have a way of preventing that. That's huge to me. I, I agree with you, Vic, very much on the cost effectiveness of the care that we're providing. MRIs are expensive. Um, they can be a little bit invasive and anxiety producing for patients. So, you know, if we can find other avenues that also are effective, I think we should look at that. And then also one thing that's difficult to study or difficult to measure is the level of anxiety that it's some of these, this routine testing causes patients. And, you know, are we doing more harm than good chasing after a Gleason 6 when it's really not a threat to the patient's life? Um, I don't know. We don't have all the answers right now, but these are just really good things to think about going forward. Yep. And it's, it's kind of easy to, to say schedule them for, for a prostate biopsy, but you know, they're, that's not a benign procedure. You know, there's uh, certainly the risk of sepsis. I, I always say, thank God nobody's ever died from one that I participated in, but it's out there. People have died from prostate biopsies, um, bleeding. I mean, I've had a couple of patients that were rushed to the ER because they just had significant rectal bleeding. And, you know, you're always, nowadays, everybody's taking some kind of blood thinner, it seems, whether it's baby aspirin or ibuprofen or, you know, or real, real blood thinners. And some don't always think about that and they don't tell you. 
I always ask that question um, before we do a biopsy when I'm screening the patients. Hey, are you on anything? And I say, are you taking aspirin, even baby aspirin? Are you taking um, ibuprofen, Motrin? I'll go through the whole list. And the number of blood thinners from when I started practice to now, it's crazy. I can't even remember them all. And most of them are getting either generic or the, the trade name. So they don't understand that clopidogrel and Plavix are the same drug. So it's it's gotten complicated. Go ahead, Lori. I'm just curious, um, every, anybody who's out there, are you guys doing more um, in-office biopsies or versus the transperineal? Because I know that, you know, it was always in-office biopsies. Now that the transperineal came along, we rarely do office biopsies anymore. Number one, the patient loves to be asleep for it. But number two, because there's so many site, you know, so many biopsies that are taken, it's just, it, it's a better um, biopsy versus an office. So I'm just curious to see how many people out there are still doing an office biopsies versus transperineal. So ours are, are transrectal, the bulk of them. We, we do the fusion biopsies also with the MRI, but that uh, um, isn't the bulk. Um, transrectal is, is what I'm seeing right now. Um, I don't have much experience with the perineal biopsies. I think it, it, it became favorable because of the safety factor with sepsis. You know, when you're not going through the rectum, you're not risking contaminating the, the prostate with, you know, E. coli from the rectum. So it, it, it's sensible, but it's not, definitely, it's, it's not without its risk. I've seen a few uh, perineal hematomas that don't look so great from bleeding. Yeah, I um, I know that, um, I guess I should have uh, differentiated, but uh, when I say in-office biopsies, I'm meaning rectal, of course, um, although we are possibly going to be doing transperineal in the office. So I'm just wondering how many people are actually doing transperineal in the office. Would be interesting to me. So let me just look at our questions. Uh, Charlene Balmer asked, you mentioned ISO-PSA instead of looking at concentration, it looks at, so it looks at chemical structure. So it's actually taking the structure of the PSA and dividing, the reagent divides it in two aqueous states and that they float on top of each other so that the one state can be looked at the others for a ratio. It's not as confusing as 4K was, but it's still, that's the way I think of it in my mind. So they get a ratio based on that. But, uh, I think that's going to be going forward. That's going to prevent a lot of unnecessary biopsies. MRI is interesting. So we do the fusion biopsies in our office. I don't really do much with that, but I have been there to kind of see how it works and everything. But, uh, you know, they look at higher detection rates from the MRI biopsies. But I can tell you that we take 12 cores at its standard, um, you know, rectal trans ultrasound rectal biopsy, MRI is taking 25, 30, you know, well, if I took 30 biopsy samples, I'd have higher rates of, of uh, detection too. So I, I wonder sometimes if it's a false falseness to the MRI. How's the coverage on that, Vic, as far as the, the fusion? Yeah, biopsy? it's covered. It's covered. As long as you have the, most, most of them, you have to have, you know, obviously you have to have the PIRAD score that supports it. Um, some of them require that you have a failed 
you know, negative ultrasound biopsy, a standard biopsy. So that'll be like a second step. But more, more and more with the PIRAD score, you can go right to that. And it is covered. Uh, Vic, do you know, are they looking for only PIRADs 4 and 5, or will they allow it for a PIRADs 3 as well? Not sure about the low, that, that kind of intermediate. I'm not sure what the insurance companies do. Okay. Usually, usually by the time I see the patients, they've already been pre-certified for all that. So. Now, do you have a company that comes in? No, we, we do it ourselves. You have your own. So oh, that's cool. Yeah. Any other questions coming in, feel free. To, and again, if it's not necessarily from uh, to do with prostate biopsy or not, if it's just general, you got a thought, you want to say a suggestion for something, that's great. If not, uh, we're actually at the end of our hour. So I think that uh, unless there's any questions I see popping in here, I'm going to be uh, turning off and we will go. I will open up that after show if you're wanting to come in and chat feel free. If we don't, feel free of that too. So then we'll hopefully see you all next week. Um, this has really been great. I think, you know, again, we're launching it. It's going to change as we go along, but we're hoping to put together a good program to start off. And I hope everybody got a lot of good information from this. And we look forward to next week's. Watch your email. You'll see what's coming when it comes through. Um, also check euronurse.com and I'll have a copy of this program so if you want to refer to your friends say hey you want to see what it's all about you can watch it they can go to the youtube channel and watch it either you know whichever they find easiest um also i encourage those that are watching it to say i could do this you could do this so sign up be a panelist we could use more people um and hopefully we'll see andrea and Lori next week i'll kind of twist their arms again no, no they were they were really good to get going but uh, we need more people to obviously keep this sustained we want to make this happen so i'm going to say goodbye anybody uh last minute comments from either of my other panelists thank you so much Vic, for helping put this together this has been really fun you're welcome this is this yeah. is great yeah all right great thank you all right hopefully we'll see some on the other side on the after show thank you bye-bye now